Now that true crime has become an obsessively popular genre, it is no surprise that when people find out we are forensic scientists, we are met with an outpouring of questions. Did you work that recent homicide? Yo, what does decomp smell like? You must love your job, huh? It's through questions like these that we have come to realize that you want more. I'm Bodine. And I'm Darby, and we are here to serve up the Coffee Talk version of everything you need to know about the science, laws, and people behind the yellow tape. Welcome to the Washoe County Sheriff's Office. Coffee with a Criminalist. Hello, everyone. Hi, guys. Welcome to our final episode of the season. Uh, This week we are fueled by Blush and Bone. Um, Blush and Bone is a really cool place in town. They are a place of radical self-care, and they do mani-pedis there, Reiki, massage, and then they offer adaptogenic elixirs and drinks. And so everything they do is non-toxic, and they were actually recommended to us by a listener. Someone told us that we should go give them a try, and unfortunately we showed up on a Monday, and they're only open on the weekends, right, Darbs? Yes, they're open Thursday through Sunday and um, we had a couple people recommend their rose matcha and their lavender cold brew. I know so I'm really sad that we actually did not get to try these drinks because they sound delicious. (laughs) So next time. Yes so head in there and um, say hello to them say that you heard about them from us and get yourself a rose matcha and let us know how it is. Yeah Um, so if you guys you have heard us talk about before that not all scenes that we show up to are criminal in nature and on this week's episode we we're discussing the 2011 air race crash and if you are unaware of it the air races is one of the most popular local events that happens it's actually been around since 1964 and it draws over a hundred thousand spectators annually um, every september this also brings in millions of dollars of revenue for our economy and it has been coined the world's fastest motorsport It was started by a couple of World War II pilots who wanted to bring an event to the Reno area that was much like the Cleveland National Championships, which had been canceled. It was started by Bill Stead. Yeah, that name should ring a bell to those of us locally. So Stead, Stead Airport. Yes. And Bob Hoover. Yeah, and Hoover was actually shot down as a World War II pilot um, and escaped a POW camp. And uh, Stead was like a pilot and a local uh, rancher in town. And Darby and I had so much fun just researching about these guys. I think we spent a lot of time um, in preparation for this one. We kind of got off track a little bit like, man, these guys are really cool. And so there is a documentary about Bob Hoover you guys can look up. And um, they're just really interesting dudes and like how this event came into play. It's something that I always grew up with. I know, Darby, you weren't local when you were little. Um, But for me, my little brother was in uh, Boy Scouts actually and volunteered every year and had a boy scout um breakfast and so kind of knowing the backstory to all of that now as an adult i thought wow that was just like such a cool thing that these guys did so if you're interested look these guys up crashes have happened at this event in the past but it was in 2011 when a plane collided with the grandstands that it impacted spectators pilot jimmy lee ward had been flying a world war ii era p-51 mustang titled the galloping ghost and was the last race of the day 69 people were injured, and there were 11 fatalities, including the pilot. The crash was contributed to worn aircraft parts and unprecedented speeds. Our agency, along with numerous others, responded to aid in this non-criminal mass catastrophe scene. We'll be hearing from two analysts today, um, one that actually worked the grounds and the scene, and then an analyst that assisted with um, the DNA analysis here in the laboratory. And first up, we'll be hearing from supervising criminalist Renee Armstrong. 
Well, hi, welcome, Renee. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on the podcast. We're really excited to hear from you. Yeah, I've been listening to you guys, and I'm loving what I'm hearing, so I'm excited you invited me. Well, thank you so thank much. Thank you, yeah. Um, what is your current position here at the Forensic Science Division? I am a supervising criminalist, so I supervise the evidence section and the crime scene response section and latent print processing. Awesome. And how did you get into forensics? Uh, it was kind of by luck. I wish I could tell a story about loving it since I was a kid and all that great stuff. Um, I feel like I'm going to date myself, but it was just becoming a big thing when I was in college, and my college focus was actually zoological studies. Okay. I imagined myself like doing Animal Planet or something, because secretly <laughs> I wanted to be an actress, so I thought if I could do Animal Planet, I got screen time plus animals. Nice. It was going to work out. <laughs> Did I have any real-life plans to make that happen? No, not a single one. <laughs> But I was going to at least have the degree. And then, um, this is always very cheesy, but I met a guy, and he wanted to be a firefighter. Mm-hmm. And about three months into us dating, he got hired with Reno. And that was his dream. And I was coming to the end of my college career, had like a year and a half left, and I was still figuring myself out and took a genetics course and fell in love with DNA. Okay. So I Googled DNA Reno, and the first thing that came up was the lab. So I was like, well, you know, I'm actually really gothic, and I like DNA. Maybe this would be a good fit for me. So I reached out and, I guess lack of a better word, stalked the supervisors at the <laughs> lab about how I could get in there. That's the way to do it, though. Right? Oh, yeah. I was I was stalking them. I was, like, meeting them every open house, making eye contact, being like, I'm going to work for you one day. <laughs> like I recognize the state. Yeah, and my old boss was like, I, I don't know if I was threatened or impressed when he would say that. <laughs> so um, long story short, I did what I needed to do to make sure my resume would at least catch the eye of the sheriff's office when um, opportunities happened. And when the opportunity came around, there was a DNA position and a crime scene response. And while I'd been kind of cool in my heels waiting to get an opportunity, I'd started working in a lab um, running assays for pharmaceuticals and realized I hated being stuck inside indoors for 40 hours straight. Mm-hmm. Like It just killed me a little bit. And when I'd been in college, I'd done a bunch of like camping stuff, and I realized I hate being camping for like a week. So there had to be a happy medium someplace. And crime scene response sounded like it. A little bit in the field, a little bit in the lab, a lot of fun things, different things. And so um, I really put all my effort into that resume and did the DNA one also, and um, got an opportunity to interview and was chosen. All right. Nice. It's actually been kind of a theme. I was just going to say, yeah. I feel like it's very, been shockingly a common theme that like a lot of people we've talked to have not actually wanted to go into forensics since they were like a small child or yeah. anything. Mm-hmm. And same thing with us too. Just kind of happened. Yeah, yeah. You mm-hmm. think, I think uh, the newer generation, I mean, they've grown up with it. Right. But mm-hmm. it didn't really become a big thing for us until we got older. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I appreciate I never watched the shows. I don't know why. I just... It wasn't my jam, mm-hmm. but <laughs> to be quite honest, but uh, I appreciate it and I love science and all of its aspects. So, uh, yeah, once the opportunity came around, I was like, you know, and about that boy, we're married with three kids now. So, oh, it worked so out. good okay. choice for me. Pat yeah. myself on the back for good <laughs> options. <laughs> and how long have you been in forensics now? 15 years. Wow. Okay. Right. Right. Time flies when you actually really love your job. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> You talked a little bit about your educational background, but can you tell us what you have your degrees in and whatnot? Uh, yeah, my degree is actually in uh, biology from UNR. So. Okay. okay. Yeah. And then I think this episode is really going to focus on what else FIS does. I think everybody knows, especially from their interview with Sayer, that you guys respond to crime scenes. Yes. But um, not all scenes that you guys go to are crime scenes, correct? Correct. And so you guys do, like, mass casualty responses as well. Yeah, we will do... Um, 
mass casualties, um, something where maybe there could be a huge impact to society or the citizens that we have that where maybe they need that little extra bit that FIS can offer. Okay. And then um, when we look at the air race uh, catastrophe that happened, mm-hmm. um, you were currently employed at the sheriff's office at the time. Yes. And what was your position at that time? Forensic tech or investigator at that point. Interchangeable terms, but yes. Okay. I worked in the uh, crime scene response section. Okay. And so you were at that point tasked with actually going to crime scenes and collecting yes. evidence. Yes. And okay. I was actually one of the. Um, we kind of do two people on call 24 7, 365, and we rotate that amongst. Um, the six to eight staff members in that section. Yeah, I was actually scheduled to be on call that week. Okay. And how were you notified about this call? In our section, we have gallows humor. But one thing we do is we believe strongly in Murphy's Law. And so if we say things like, I'm going to make ribs this weekend, ribs are time consuming and take all your attention. So you're going to get called out the whole time. (laughs) You will not have nice, tasty ribs. You will have horrible (laughs) things. So we always talk about don't tempt fate. Always try and like you know, keep your weekends open and just don't rave, wave that red flag in front of Murphy because she will look right at you. And so um, as I left for the day, myself and the other analysts said, all right, what kind of call outs do we want? Because we can't say none or we'll just get hammered. And this has already been a very interesting month. So what, what do we want? I said, well, I'm going on vacation in a week. So how about if we have any scenes, photos, but no evidence collection? All right, I'll see you later. And I had pretty much gotten seven blocks when someone calls me and says, Renee, you've got to come back. Really? There's, that quick? That quick. Then I said, why? The, we got a call out. We had a, uh, there's been an accident, and they're going to want our response because it's a very large accident. Oh, my gosh. So I flipped a Yui and came right back. And was this your first mass catastrophe response? No, it was not. Actually, um, we had had the Amtrak uh, truck incident occur that June. So we had done that. Um, I had not personally responded to the IHOP situation, but that had happened about 10 days before the crash too. So that fall and summer, we'd already started experiencing some mass casualty situations. Okay. So you guys were had some preparation. We had some preparation. Yeah, we were able to mentally get ourselves prepared. We already kind of had game plans. And in the section, you're basically taught to prepare for everything and anything. Mm -hmm. So mass casualty conversations, is part of your training. You okay. learn about how you're going to handle it, what we're going to do. Our sergeant pretty much called in everyone who could handle it, including our latent print comparison examiner at that time because he'd previously done crime scene work. So we had, I think, eight of us total from FIS actually gone out to that Okay, scene. so like the whole unit was responding. The entire unit responded. Okay. How long after the crash had occurred were you actually on scene? About 20 minutes. Oh, wow. Well, from the I say from crash occurring, I apologize, you'd have to look to find out when someone actually, the crash occurred, Mm -hmm. but um, we were notified of it at like 5.30, and then we were out there. Okay. And um, do you know what you're getting into when you show up on scene to these types of situations, or do you have kind of like a bare minimum of briefing? You know what you're getting into in the sense of maybe the physics of it. If someone tells you a plane crashes and and there's a lot of casualties, you can kind of do the math Mm -hmm. of what kind of... uh, area you're looking at. So we are given as much of a briefing as we can be given. Um, in a situation like this, it was your basic information that a plane had crashed on the tarmac near the grandstands and in the area of where like the VIP sat on the tarmac. So we know that we're going to deal with a very large debris field. We're mm-hmm. going to be dealing with a lot of casualties. If anything, in this job, I learned that bodies are a lot more fragile than what 
action movies like yeah. to tell you. Mm-hmm. So we are very fragile creatures, I learned. And you can prepare yourself as best you can for when you get there. And of course, when you see it, it's always so much different than what you plan in your head. But again, I think maybe all of us are in that field because we have a great job of compartmentalizing. We get there and we see the science we see the processing that needs to be done. And we've already touched on that. This one, this particular scene wasn't a crime scene. So what exactly are you tasked with doing at these mass catastrophe situations when it's not a crime scene? When it's not a crime scene, what we want to do is just as much documentation as possible to um, assist any of the entities that will be doing the investigative side of it in having as much information as they can to understand the impact it had on the site We were also looking for any identifiable body parts. So what we were asked is, let's find all that tissue, anything that could be used for potential DNA um, identification or um, ridge detail for fingerprints or footprint identification. Another reason why we had our comparison person out there. He could, if we found something small with ridge detail, he could tell us if there was going to be enough potential value for him to make an identification. Mm -hmm. And so you want to be able to account for everyone was there. If there's a missing person, we're hoping that we can find enough enough um, for either DNA or fingerprinting to say, hey, we found that person. They've been, they've been identified as mm-hmm. one of the casualties. And then beyond just like what, you know, emotionally or, you know, compartmentalizing you had to do, what was the scene actually like? Like, what did it look like? Oh, it was, I had never actually been to the air races. Okay. I remember making a comment saying I'd never actually been out there. So uh, it was huge. It was slightly overwhelming when you first walk up, as all things are, because you just think, where can I even begin? This is a mile, two long, two mile, three long tarmac. Mm -hmm. Where do we even start it? So when we first got there, it was just debris everywhere. You saw um, stuffed animals, you saw money floating around, you saw body parts, you saw the impact, you saw plane pieces. I mean, you saw everything. Uh, There was a huge pile of belts and they needed tourniquets on people that were injured. So they were told everyone, give us your belts. So it was a huge pile of belts where clearly people were able to assist and say, okay, here's my belt, I'm gonna mm-hmm. give that to you. So we saw where people had put items to help with the recovery efforts of those first responders trying to help the people on site. That night we got there, it was kind of the evening going in, so it was very dark and we were actually able to use a lot of long range um, lenses and kind of a fisheye lens, which was very wide angle to capture as much of it as we could. We painted with light, which basically means we set it up on the tripod, open the exposure, and then just kind of hit flashlights to let you see more than you would if you just took a camera and did a quick flash. And then uh, the next morning, that's where I have like my most vivid memories. We got there really early hours, maybe around 6.30, and I could just hear hundreds of birds in the bleachers. Because we could keep people out, but you can't keep nature out. Oh, I didn't even think of that. So here's the bleachers. You can't see any of the birds, but you hear them echoing inside because they've got concession food. And I remember us walking up as a group, and they just stopped. Like, it was very Hitchcockian. It wasn't crows or anything. It was like the little cute blackbirds that you see. And you're like, oh, that's so sweet. Now I see them, and I'm like, you guys are kind of scary. Like, yeah. but, so, but that was such a vivid memory. It's just this noise of uh, birds and then silence. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing, too, is when we show up at scenes, there's that eerie silence. Anyone who can be helped is already gone from the scene. And when we show up at a scene or a mass casualty, it's that silence afterwards. 
So in a lot of ways, it seems like it was treated like a crime scene, um, and you tackled it the same way you would a crime scene. You just necessarily weren't um, doing any of the evidence collection. Absolutely, yeah. We go into everything, even the mass casualty recovery situation, as we would with um, processing as if you were a crime scene. And that's also maybe kind of a safeguard, too, that what if day two they say, hey, this was actually a crime? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, you know, that's great because we've been treating it as though it was potentially one from the beginning in the sense of processing it the same way we would a normal crime scene. So it's kind of a built-in safety net of our training that does that, that we go in and we treat everything equally from mass casualty to crime to a non-crime that we respond to. Um, Because you never quite know once the investigation is done what kind of information they'll uncover and you only hope that what you collected with your training and experience will give a, help them figure out the true truth of the situation. It sounded like you were on scene for maybe a couple of days, so how long were you guys actually at that scene? We were there for two days, okay. and it doesn't seem like a lot probably to someone hearing that, oh, two days, 12 hours, but there were eight of us just in FIS. And then in addition to FIS, we had... Um, Reno Police Department detectives from MATE, and they were doing diagramming. We had the Nevada Department of Public Safety and Highway Patrol and the Investigation Division. We had the National Transport and Safety Board personnel, and along with the Washoe County Coroner ME's office. So there was a huge grouping of people, everyone given very specific tasks. And if all of us hadn't worked together, it would have been probably a week long. But Mm -hmm. because everyone worked together, we figured out a game plan, and we executed it really efficiently, we were able to do it in about two days. Do you guys issue reports on this type of stuff for like the, the stuff that you have done? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, okay. We anytime we do a scene and a processing, we do um, a report for it. So the report contained the list of the ten victims, um, the subjects involved, the agencies that took, if you will, the lead on it. So we just basically talk about what our tasks were, what we were told to do, and what our results were. And with something like this, do they do any sort of debriefing with teams? I mean, this is something that could potentially have an impact on the people that work it emotionally or mentally? Like, is there any kind of rundown afterwards? Um, Yeah, actually, when these situations do occur, um, debriefings do happen. And because it's had so many agencies involved, I was actually mandated to attend a debriefing, which Mm. not only included myself, but pretty much everyone involved, from dispatch to Raven to uh, first officers on site, fire department, REMSA, all those people kind of got together in a big room in a big circle and were able to explain their role in it and how it impacted them and how they were feeling after it. You were talking a little bit, but this was a big fall for you guys. You had a lot of mass casualty incidents, a lot of um, big crime scenes. So did this experience impact you personally in any way? In this situation, I hadn't realized that I had developed a couple stressors until I did the briefing. So while I was not a fan of the briefing, because as I've mentioned, we go there when everyone who can be helped has been helped. So mm-hmm. it's very easy to push your emotions away. Sitting around a group and hearing them discuss uh, the, getting the phone calls, assisting and all that, it, it made it very real and it was very emotional for me. And I, I was not a fan of feeling those feelings, but as a human, you should, and mm-hmm. it's good that you do. <laughs> but I remember something very clearly at the end when they said, hey, you may find yourself a little irrationally, irrational and angry sometimes, and you won't know why, realize it's just this situation manifesting itself. And if you recognize it, you'll be able to work through those feelings. Um, cut to, like that weekend, my husband and I are out, and historically, whenever we take long vacations, he compares about, complains about how uncomfortable his shoes are. He just can't walk long hours in them. 
So I was so convinced that he needed to buy this certain brand of shoes because all my crime scene people swore by them. So those best shoes, they could walk in them for 24 hours. So we went out and um, we went to a couple of the places around Reno and they had the brand, but not in a style he liked. And I just got so irrationally mad at him. Like, why can't we just buy a pair? And you know, and he's like, I don't like the color. I'm like, you need to like something. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna stop caring about your feet if this is how you wanna be about it. And he was like, if you stop yelling, I'll just buy whatever pair you want. <laughs> and I looked at him and I was like, oh, this is the stress manifesting that they were talking that about. Because I usually would not rip you apart for not buying a pair of shoes that you don't like the look of. You know, had I not had that briefing to recognize it, he probably would have thought I was just this crazy shoe obsessed wife that yeah. was just losing my mind. But. Uh, so they seem to be helpful then, the debriefings. They are very helpful in recognizing that one, you can feel those feelings, it's okay. And two, you're not the only one. Right. So here's this huge room. So if I maybe I didn't want the group aspect, but I now knew individuals I can talk to. And if someone's story really resonated with me, I could go up to them and say, hey, let's just talk about this because I, you know, I'm still processing things. So um, the mental health aspect of having that is extremely important. And I remember telling my boss, you know, I, I don't know if briefings are for me, but I'm really glad you told me I had to go to it and you had me sit down in it because now I know that on those situations, I should go. Mm-hmm. And I think that's helped me as a supervisor too with my team is I check in a lot with them. Like, how are you? Were you okay with that? And if they even give a hint that it's still kind of haunting them, I make sure that I give them the resources provided by the sheriff's office to talk to peer support or um, talk to EAP or know that they have these things to talk to so they don't push it down. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's not healthy to push it down. You need to be able to compartmentalize it and move to the next thing. But we're human beings. Yeah, and absolutely. we want to make sure that at the end of the day, we can still keep doing our job. Mm-hmm. Well, Renee, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and yeah. talking about your experiences in the field. Um, you've made it to part of our episodes that we like to get to know you more than just the person who wears the crime scene vest. Okay. Um, so as much as you'd like to share with our listeners, like who is Renee outside of the crime lab? Uh, Renee outside the crime lab is a mom and a wife and a best friend. I've got three kids, a seven, a five, and a two, and they crack me up. I've got a husband who he and I have been together for, I think, 16 years now. Oh, congratulations. And um, I also love creative outlets, so my creativity manifests itself as dancing. So up until having kids, I used to regularly perform in Art Town and do all the stuff. I hope to get back to that. Mm -hmm. I also love to hobby write, but I also love to not finish those books. So I have like (laughs) 60 half-started books that when I do publish, watch out, world. Yeah, you got a lot of them. I just just got a bam. I'm going to be like a Dean Coons every week, every (laughs) week. And then I'll just break hearts because not a single one of them is about forensics because I shut (laughs) off the forensics when I leave. Yeah, so I love to write, um, travel. That's one of my favorite things. The pandemic actually, obviously, for the, yeah. everyone, killed our travel. And I found that's one of my best stress relievers is to take a couple of weeks off and just mm-hmm. leave the country, not even just the state, but the country, and see the world. And um, I'm also, an, I guess, an extroverted introvert. 
Okay. So I love to hang out with everyone, but I'm also the first to say I'm going to stay home in my thermals and just binge watch something on Netflix with some hot cocoa. Yeah. So that's that's me too. So th- that's me outside of this place, I'd say. Awesome. Nice. Well, we've reached the uh, part in our podcast we like to call the lightning round. Okay, so your first question off the cuff here is, do you think that all people possess the ability to emotionally or mentally handle the aspects of your job? Um, or is this maybe like a unique quality to just certain people? And if that's the case, do you think it can be learned? That's a great question. I don't think everyone can do this. I okay. think some people are very strong, I guess the term is empaths, where they tend to absorb all the emotions of people around them, but they don't know how to push it out. I do think it can be learned. Mm-hmm. I think there's some of us in the world that have a great ability to compartmentalize and just move it aside. but. Um, some people can try and learn it and just realize it's not their thing. But I did find that, um, as I've seen people coming and going through the training process of the lab, that some people come in thinking they cannot do it. But how we train and how we teach them to look at everything through the scientific lens does create that important barrier. So when they go in, and as I tell my team all the time, I said, our job when we show up is not to fall apart. Because that doesn't help anyone. That doesn't mm-hmm. help anyone in the situation. There is, you know, for the victims involved, there is a group that will work with them and be there to hold their hand and the shoulder to cry on. The best thing we can do is focus on the science of it, collect that evidence unbiasedly and unemotionally, and just your your emotions would be involved in the sense of, I want to do the best work for the science. You collect that evidence, and you collect it in such a way that it can be processed down the line, and that it'll aid in the discovery of the truth of the event. Like I said, we don't you don't go in thinking, I'm going to catch the bad guy or I'm going to prove the bad guy is innocent. It's, mm-hmm. I'm going in to collect the evidence, and that's all I'm going to do. And that we train into people. And by doing that, it helps them to build that ability to not be overwhelmed by the emotions of the situation. Um, that being said, even those of us, when we do that training, sometimes they show up and they say, um, you know, I can do the scene, but I can't do the second part. Mm-hmm. I did have a situation where I went to one and I knew the victim. Oh. I didn't know her until the end because of inability to make an identification. Mm-hmm. But I remember looking around going, man, this is so familiar to me. I had never been to that person's house, but her and I were gym friends, if you will. Okay. Um, ready to get coffee together kind of a situation. And only at, and this is one of those weird situations where they never actually told me the name of the victim till the end because they couldn't find it. And then they told me the name and all the um, cogs fell into place. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh my gosh, I know this person. And um, I told my supervisors, I just say, so you know, this is a friend of mine. I am 99% done with the scene, so I, there's nothing for me to do, so there's no reason for me to step out of it. He said, okay, but I'm gonna get someone in for the autopsy. I said, please do, mm-hmm. I don't want to do the autopsy. And so, but that was, you know, in my training, I learned that I could separate from my situation, but at the same time, I didn't have to put myself in there and there yeah. were options. So um, we were able to do that. So that's a really long answer to basically say that, yes, I think some people can be trained, and I think that even with training, it's just not for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And even someone who swears that they live by those forensic files, they binge watch them. Hollywood versus reality. It's so different. So different. All your senses involved on a whole different level. Mm-hmm. I have friends that swear they could do the work because they can like, verbatim quote those shows front to back. And they're even more gruesome than real life. I'm like, yes, but your brain knows you're looking at something that's not real in your world. Mm-hmm. Or <laughs> it may be a real case but it's still done through Hollywood's lens. So that separation exists and that safety exists. 
Do you take your work home with you? Maybe not necessarily physically, but um, emotionally and mentally as well? I, that is a great question because I have to think about it because I, I say no. But obviously by that briefing and the story I told about being a little snippy with my husband, mm-hmm. um, I did. Sometimes if kids are involved, I go home and I hug my kids a little bit more or I'll like peek in on them if they're sleeping. But um, I like to think I leave it at the job. Mm-hmm. As a supervisor, I take home different things. Yeah. I take mm-hmm. home like, oh, I have to finish this assignment. I do these graphs. So the admin side of it, I have a harder time turning off when I get home. And there are times when if all the kids are asleep and my husband's working his 24-hour shift, then I'm like, I'm going to check my emails. I'm going to make sure I get things because it'll make it easier for me during work hours. So as a supervisor, I definitely take it home a little bit more. And um, what has this job changed for you outside of work, if anything? I think how um, I discuss with my children about life events. Uh, I think how I'm raising my kids is definitely affected by what we see. you, you know, you teach your kids stranger danger, but I think I may take it to a little bit of a higher level. Um, when I talk to babysitters who are potentially going to watch my kids, I think I'm a little terrifyingly blunt. Mm-hmm. I'm like, have you ever been accused of mentally abusing or physically abusing a child? And, you know, their faces, I'm like, okay, the answer is no. But, you know, you can mm-hmm. see that they, you know, it's a college kid. They've never been asked that question. Right. So I'm definitely a lot more blunt about... Um, questions I ask people that will be caring for my children. I think I'm a little bit more of protective of my kids. I don't want to say I'm a helicopter parent. I like to think I can land my helicopter and not <laughs> like yeah. get to it. But I am, um, I think, more hyper aware of the, the, bad, the bad things in the world yeah. and how um, innocent people can get pulled into it. Uh, I think it made me kind of more of a mama bear with my girlfriends when we go clubbing and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Like, I would be super... I don't drink ever, so I was always kind of in that mama bear role of watching their drinks and everything like that, but I refused to let them go home alone, and I would always drive them, um, and it just made me more protective of my friends. Mm-hmm. We can I, certainly relate to that. Yes, especially what we hear on a daily basis. So, But I always feel a little bit like, uh, do they look at me going, okay, listen, Debbie Downer, we just wanted to go to a <laughs> hostel and a discotheca in Europe, and you're telling us to check in every three hours. I always yeah. feel like that sometimes, too, that you're like a negative mm-hmm. Nancy, because right. you're always like, oh, no, you know, don't right. do that, don't go mm-hmm. there, don't do this, and they're right. like, we're just trying to have fun. Exactly. Yeah, you're the one popping up in the background, pardon me. <laughs> just Everyone's consider like, this. Oh, Please yeah. don't do that. Please don't do that. Oh, don't invite her to the party. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and our last and final question is, what makes you smile every day when you come to work? Seeing my team love the job as much as me. Hmm. I think if I can go home knowing my team loves what they do, then that puts the biggest smile on my face. If they come to me excited about maybe learning a new discipline or adding to their resume or adding something to our scene processing and they have excitement about that and they're ready to hit the ground running, I'd say that's probably one of the biggest things that makes me smile. Um, The family feel of our lab where we all like, help each other out Um, if one lab is needing assistance people will you know hey I'm caught up let me do it what can I do to help you and so that camaraderie makes me smile Uh, everyone's humor everyone has their own unique sense of humor so I get a laugh from at least everyone I interact with at some point in the day at work and for the heavy topics we deal with the laughter is important it's also knowing what we do is impactful in a positive way to society I think when we talk about job satisfaction and what makes people so happy, 
I love what I do because I love that it helps people. Mm-hmm. My work is great. Like I said, time flies mm-hmm. when you love your job and you feel so when strongly about it. When your work is cool. It. Yeah, when mm-hmm. your work is great. And, mm-hmm. you know, I still get a smile on my face when people find out about it. When people find out what you do, mm-hmm. they really want to, to know, know more about mm-hmm. it. And so that's a really cool feeling. Like, this is why you guys did the podcast is mm-hmm. getting that information out. People find out you guys are criminalists and they're just like, oh, let's get a cup of tea. Let's talk about mm-hmm. it. Or a cup of coffee. I apologize. Well, we, <laughs> we always joke that we become 10 times more interesting as soon as people find that out. Yeah. It, it's a cool job. And yeah, you can't help but love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we just really want to thank you for coming on the podcast and sitting yeah. down with us and having Great tea and coffee. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and next we will be hearing from Jen Naranjo. Well, welcome, Jen. Thanks for coming on to our podcast today. Thank you, friends. Um, so, Jen, what is your current role at the Washington County Sheriff's Office? Um, I'm a DNA analyst and a primary exam analyst, and I'm also the state um, alternate CODIS administrator. And what's your educational background? I have a bachelor's degree in environmental science and management, and I also have graduate credits from UNR that are specific to the job that I'm working in right now. And um, you're actually from New Mexico, correct? That's correct. And what were you doing in New Mexico before you started in forensics? I was going to college. And once I graduated from uh, New Mexico Highlands University, I decided to come to UNR to work on my graduate degree. How long have you been here? I have been uh, at the Washoe County Sheriff's Office yes. for um, coming on 16 years now. Wow. Well, congrats on that. That's a feat for sure. Um, and so today on the podcast, we're talking about the air race catastrophe. And um, we have spoken a little bit about the fact that this isn't something that we do all the time um, in our area, but it's something that we will help on. So do you know if this was your first um, experience working on a mass catastrophe event? Personally, it was my uh, first time working on a mass catastrophe. And did you see this on the news beforehand, or did you know before the media? Like, I, you know, to tell you the truth, it's been so long. Um, I have no recollection of how this happened. Um, for the most part, you know, I don't really watch television because we we live the news, mm-hmm. and so I tend to not keep an eye on that. I just remember coming in. Um, into work and there was a lot of excitement and and then we found out what happened. And what exactly was the DNA section's involvement like or what were you guys doing since this wasn't actually a crime? So our role was to assist the medical examiner's office in reassociating the body parts that were found at the scene and we did this um, by taking the samples that were submitted generating a DNA profile and comparing them to known samples. And so that was our role in this process. So you were like more trying to help almost get like complete bodies back for families so that they could have like proper burials and things like that. That's correct. And how did you guys prepare for this? Like did these samples come in and you guys processed them through your normal process or did you have to prepare to take on all of these samples? And how long did you have to prepare? So this was a unique situation for us as a team and a section. Um, To begin with, um, the supervisor for the biology section and the director were both out of town. So that doesn't happen that often. Yeah. But uh, why is that unique? Well, we need somebody to guide us. Um, Mm -hmm. Because we have a technical leader, that's the way uh, DNA sections work in crime labs that are accredited, Um, our technical leader, Dr. Smith-Rome, 
she was uh, tasked with basically organizing and getting this done for the medical examiner's office. So she was in contact with them continuously, reached out to them and said, we're available for you, what can we do, how can we help? And they had us on standby. Once we were notified that we were going to be assisting in the um, body and identification of the body parts, um, we had to set a plan into action. So what we did was we got together as a group, and there were seven of us that worked together at that time, and we said, okay, what can we do? So we decided that we would have four people uh, do the processing of the samples. We would have a floater, that's what we called the individual, and they were responsible for assisting and setting up all our instrumentation and workstations. And then we would have reviewers that we had to preserve because if you participate in the analysis process, you cannot review your own work. Right. So what we did was we had all the rooms set up. Um, so once the items were submitted into the laboratory, the evidence uh, technicians at that time had to take all the samples and create a unique identifier for each item. 34 items were submitted, and so that took approximately three hours. I think that's something that people don't actually realize is the evidence part is such a huge part of our jobs, and they play such a massive role in organizing that. Um, and like, like you said, you couldn't even start your job until they booked it all in. That's correct. Um, the items came in at 1 o'clock on September 20th, and that took three hours. During that time, everyone went to work in getting the laboratory ready. So we basically stopped doing all the other casework at that time, and we started prepping for the process. So we set up four uh, sections of our lab where individuals would be given um, their samples, and everything is gonna have a unique identifier on them that was already predetermined. So the nice thing about that is we were able to label all our tubes ahead of time. Mm -hmm. We were able to set up all the cutting supplies. Everything was set up and ready to go. So once the items of evidence came in, they were taken into custody by one individual who then separated them out to the four of us. So what we got were, each of us got approximately eight. It depended on you know what um, different individuals got a different number. But again, there were 34 samples. So once we did that, everyone was then now ready to go. And what we did was we started documenting the evidence as we typically do. And what we received for the most part were, was muscle. Um, what we decided ahead of time is that because of the situation and because of the nature of the muscle tissue, it can have difficulties during extraction. And that could be because of inhibitors. Um, in this particular case, because there was a lot of fuel and other mm -hmm. material, we had to figure out a way how to get these samples so that we can get a profile the first go. So we decided that we would take a portion of the sample of the muscle, and then we would also swab the muscle. And that's not typical, we don't typically do that, but this is something we needed to do to get everything on the first shot. So, and when you say take a portion, like you literally mean you put a piece of the muscle flesh into a tube and that was what was processed. That's correct. Okay, yeah. and then you swabbed. Um, we've talked about swabs on the podcast a lot, so you just used a Q-tip and like swabbed the outside of the muscle, or how did that work? We actually took the muscle and with a sterile uh, scalpel, we cut the muscle with a slit. So basically we're trying to get the interior of the muscle so that 
anything that was on in contact with the exterior, we don't want to be swabbing that or taking mm. that because again, we don't know anything about where the muscle came from. And so we want the cleanest sample with the least amount of inhibition. So the interior of the muscle was cut a portion and then the swabs were basically just dunked into that okay. slit. And then, uh, then those go into tubes and there we have it, all our sampling is done. Because we had four, we were able to do this in a pretty quick manner. And during this process, like, did you ever stop and think, like, this is really surreal to think about what you were doing? I think, I think we think about that every time. You know, everything we do is, is just this, it's not just an item, it's an item that belonged, <clears throat> pardon me, to someone. It's muscle that belongs to someone, it's a person. And, you know, you see the, the cart with a bunch of envelopes coming in, but it really is just, you know, these are people. Mm-hmm. And for us, it's we stay focused and we know that that's our job. You know, I think of, if you think of the Lorax, speaks for the trees, I think that's somewhat like the criminalist. We speak for the evidence. And, you know, it's kind of cheesy to say that because, you know, if you don't know Dr. Seuss, but that's kind of our role. So now that you guys had all of your samples prepared, basically, did this form of kind of conveyor belt organization follow you into the DNA lab when you were processing? It did. So the same four individuals that did the sample um, processing now were responsible for completing the extraction process. And the way we worked this was we decided that it would be more efficient to process half of our samples on the Kaya Cube, which is a robotic extraction. And then the other half we would do manually. And the reason why we did that was because, b- both for the fact that it can be done quicker, but also because we're dealing with human tissue. Mm-hmm. And human tissue can often be very difficult for our process. Um, there's a lot of uh, different things in human tissue. Um, sometimes there's a large amount of fat that can have problems with our column. So for us, it's just a better way to do it manually. So while the robots were running, we did um, manual extraction where we did all the work, and then everything was done at the same time. And all four analysts were now able to move on to the next step, which is the quantitation. And the quantitation is we're just basically trying to figure out how much DNA is present in each of these samples. And so we set up our samples on two plates, and prior to us going in, all of the robots were prepped by that fifth uh, analyst, or what we called the floater. It's like the robot was ready for you to just load and go. Load and go. Okay. And all our tubes were labeled and ready for us. And then also, while we finished our extraction process, the floater went and completed um, and prepared all of the quantitation plates. Okay. We have to run standards because we need to figure out how much DNA is there, so we have to compare it to something. And the floater did all of that work so that when we were done, we can go and do our dilutions. And the reason why we have to do dilutions is because we're dealing with very large amounts of DNA possibly. And so we did dilutions from the get-go to try and get the best value that we could get um, for the amplification or basically the part that we generate the DNA profiles. And dilutions take a while. Dilutions take a very long time. Mm -hmm. And again, we have you know, 34 samples and we double that and we have all our reagent blanks to process. Mm -hmm. So putting it on two plates was just a way for us to do it quicker. 
once those went on the instrument, we were now going to be able to go home. And you, by putting these on the instrument and it having to run, there was nothing left for you guys to do, right? So this was a good opportunity for everyone to take a rest, go home, get some rest. And what time did you guys end up leaving? We left at nearly exactly midnight. And that was a very long day. Um, everyone who was there had been there on their normal shift. Mm -hmm. And so that's not uh, atypical for us. I mean, if we have a job that, you know, something that comes in and we needed to get done as soon as possible, then we will always stay until the job is done. And sometimes we've stayed longer than, you know, overnight. It could mm -hmm. be, you know, someone. Sometimes we sleep in the lab. I was just going to say. Well, not in the I lab, but like sleep down here office. in the office. Yeah. Maybe sleeping at my desk. Yes. <laughs> Occasionally people will bring us dinner. Did you guys have any dinner that night? Did anyone bring you guys anything? We had dinner that night. We did. We went, um, uh, that would be uh, someone's husband came and brought us some food from the, from the wall. Okay. Not much opened. I was going to mm -hmm. say, that's probably the only thing open <laughs> yeah. super late. Yeah. Um, I would say that having uh, steak salad was probably not the best choice for some oh, of us. Oh, no. <laughs> probably not super appetizing in that moment. And in that moment. Um, but, you know, hindsight, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so after you guys... Um, went home, what time did you guys have to come back to work and what was the next step in all of that? So the next day we, um, people came back to their normal uh, schedules and some individuals did not come back. It just it depends. Um, not everybody was needed um, to come back of that group of four. But the people that did come back and our floater um, basically continued on the process. So we did the amplification. And the amplification is when we're basically just trying to get our DNA profiles. We're using our kits to generate those profiles. And that was done um, on two separate plates. And the reason why we did this again was just for a matter of efficiency. If we run all the samples on one plate, then we would put them on one instrument. And putting them on one instrument means we, it's gonna take about nine hours for these samples. So it was thought that if we split all the samples into two plates, it can be done twice as fast. And it, it was. Because back then, so right now, um, we're, we can run 24 samples at a time. Um, but you guys had the older model at that time, and so you guys were running, what, four samples at a time? Oh, yes. That was the newer upgrade fast model. Yeah, because originally <laughs> it was, what, one sample? One sample at a time. Yeah. So yeah. now you guys could do four, but it still was going to take a long time. It was. And that's why splitting it into two instruments, it was basically like having an eight capillary injector. Yeah. But. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so once that comes off, um, who was tasked with actually interpreting the DNA? Like, what, what, did each of you four interpret, or did one person do that? So... We did not all interpret. What we did was um, two individuals were responsible for going through all the data. Um, one person was actually the main person who was going to write the report, went through all the data, and a second person helped to compile the report. Now, in this particular case, due to the number of samples, it ended up being 173 pages of documentation and data that had to be compiled. So as someone was looking at a profile and making sure it was clean and didn't have any issues, the, they would print it out and someone would just keep compiling the samples in our normal process. 
until it was completely done. Um, the tables were generated and now that we have DNA profiles from all the samples, we also had DNA profiles that were from known individuals. So that was part of the um, items that were submitted were four known muscle samples. And our ch uh, basically our task was these are the four individuals that we believe we need to reassociate all of these body parts to. And the ME did a fantastic job because we ended up with no unknown DNA wow. profiles. Okay. So we, um, at that point, were able to associate every part with the, the individuals that were submitted. And we, were, we had to generate statistics. So this was just like our normal casework. We have to make comparisons. And then a report was written and we gave verbal results to the ME's office within 24 hours. The report took a little longer to go you know, get completed and go through our review process, but it was still a 24-hour turnaround for us. And you've talked about the review process for a while, but um, originally it was probably a little bit overwhelming not to have certain people here. So you had not, you didn't have your manager, um, your manager or your lab director. Um, but additionally, you didn't have an analyst on your team. And we actually have, we've talked to Monica on the podcast and she mentioned that she loved to ride. So not having her here, she was doing um, the Death Valley ride, if I remember correctly. She was doing the death ride. Oh, the we, death ride. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so her not being here worked to your guys' benefit. And so can you kind of explain um, that review process and why that worked out with her not being here that day? So our review process requires that uh, an individual cannot review their own work. So we always had to retain two individuals from our group to make sure that the process is done according to our accreditation. So that is an individual will write a report and then a second person will come and they will review the entire case packet from the beginning to the end as if it were their own. And so basically by signing the tech review and saying they agree, it's, it's a, kind of a little bit of ownership. Mm -hmm. um, so that person, once they've done that, 173 pages, then it goes on to the administrative review. And that's the role that Monica played. And she didn't have to review um, all the technical, but we tend to have in our DNA section, a lot of times the administrative reviewer goes through a lot of the technical components as well. So mm -hmm. everything we do is reviewed by two separate individuals. And for all of this work you guys did, and as a team, you guys actually received an award for this, correct? We did. We received a civilian uh, recognition from uh, Michael Haley, who was the sheriff at that time. Um, and was this any different than how you process casework? The process was essentially the same. Um, the only thing that was different was that in typical casework, um, one case is assigned to an individual to work on, not typically four people and a floater. Um, that's how we used to do it. So we had two different workflows. We had one where a primary exam analyst would cut our samples, put them in a batch, and then the DNA analyst would, would do the work. The other process is that one person does a case from beginning to end. So that means they cut the samples, do the DNA, write the report. Um, so it wasn't very much different except for the fact that there were multiple individuals um, working on the case at the same time. Which is now kind of reflective of how we do yeah. casework now. It is. It's actually um, pretty consistent with, you know, back back in the day, may I say that, um, <laughs> we used to do batches. But batches were only assigned to each person. And so you can do a batch of 80 samples for one person. 
but now for a matter of efficiency we take those samples and we actually don't even do 80 anymore but um, we do a smaller number and we process those with multiple individuals helping out in our process mm -hmm. so it makes it a little bit more efficient was this emotionally challenging in any way or no more than every day for us well I don't with a large number of individuals um, that you know that died during the event it's it's pretty it can be emotional but to be honest with you every day is emotional um, but you sort of separate yourself from that again you know we we have an emotion we're human but we are applying science and again it's back to the Lorax you know we want to speak for the evidence and you have to separate yourself from that you can't you can't hold on to every situation or we'd be sad all the time and I think we're a pretty not sad group mm -hmm. I mean we're a pretty happy group of individuals considering what we do so and um, was there anything specific that you learned from being a part of this process I learned that we're awesome that <laughs> yes. we are we are a small lab we are one of two in a huge state and when I first started here there were only two other DNA analysts three total and one was the CODIS administrator and the other was the technical leader and you know what we do amazing things because mm -hmm. we are a small lab and what makes us a really really strong lab is that we have an excellent team I think we've always strived for that teamwork so no matter what situation even though we didn't have our director here and we didn't have our supervisor we didn't have some people here we still got it done mm -hmm. and that is the power of a team. <laughs> All right, Jen, we've reached the part where we like to get to know people mm -hmm. a little bit outside of work and outside of the lab. So we're going to ask you some personal questions and you can share whatever you like. So who are you outside of the lab, Jen? I think I'm a lot of times the same person that I am inside the lab. Um, but I have a family and I have great friends that I've been in Reno for over 20 years. And so I love to go to shows and concerts. I love to go to the farmer's market and support local businesses. Um, Tahoe is my moment of silence and, you know, everything that happens in our life, if I can just get to the lake, mm -hmm. then I feel there's clarity, which is kind of funny, right? You think of how clear Tahoe is yeah. <laughs> and you go and it's like pun or play on words here. but. It's just that clarity. Um, so that's, I think I'm the same person. And you guys know. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, um, we conclude every interview on our podcast with what's called the lightning round. So these are a few questions that are a little bit like off the cuff um, thrown at you here. And so I'll kick this one off. Um, and our first question for you is, you know, there's a lot of things um, coming out in forensics these days, especially for DNA. Um, where do you see the future of forensics going? So, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think that in, since I've been here, forensics has moved in amazing directions. And um, even though that, you know, we are so many rules for forensics because we're accredited I think we're moving toward the next gen sequencing. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be to that point where we can get samples done instantly, literally. And I think, you know, we have um, new statistics, new statistical models that are coming out that we're going to be using. Um, 
I don't I don't know. I think it's endless. And I think forensic genealogy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel that that is such a fascinating fascinating process and I think it's helped solve crimes that were literally unsolvable. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people have fears, you know, they have this fear of their DNA profile being in a database and you know, I think that's I think it's not valid fears. I think it's hugely important. People don't understand. If you can be that person that helps mm-hmm. solve a crime that was unsolvable simply because of your biology, I, I mean, I think that that has some beauty. Yeah, for sure. And our next lightning round question is, do you take your work home with you? And maybe not necessarily physically, but maybe emotionally or mentally as well, too, as well as physically. Uh, very rarely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. I think a long time ago. I learned that, number one, I don't discuss anything with my husband um, because really it's, it, I don't want anyone to have to deal with the things that we deal with. So I don't share it with anyone. And I like to be very analytical. Again, we have emotions and we feel things and we read things and it, it can be, you know, it can be a lot, but I like to leave out this building and know that I'll be back tomorrow and my life isn't this job Mm -hmm. this is not my my life my career is not my job you know everything but when I come here I will be here a hundred percent and when I'm home I'm there a hundred percent yeah how has this job changed uh things for you outside of work if any huh well you know what my dad was a police officer okay so it hasn't changed a lot for me because this job is law enforcement and that's what I grew up with. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that when you grow up in that environment, you you know that, you know, it, you may think, you know, when you come in here that you're going to save the world and you're going to change everything, but this is a reality, you know, and I grew up with my dad saying just there are good people and there are people who make bad decisions. Mm -hmm. Not everybody, there's no really bad people. They're just bad decisions. And so I don't know if it's really changed me because I was already, you know, familiar with this mindset. Mindset Mm -hmm. and this, you know, it's kind of funny to say it, but this lifestyle of work, you know, we are in a paramilitary job and we come in and we have a chain of command. And so I I don't really think it's changed anything for me. And our last and final question. And is, our favorite question. What makes you smile every day at work? Um, my, the people I work with. They are basically the rock of, you know, the reason why I've been here for 16 years is not, you know, it's coming to work and seeing smiling faces and listening to people's stories about their dog and their children and just madness. Mm-hmm. And it's funny to see that and hear it and what makes me smile is when we get a new analyst and they start off and they they are so shy and they don't know what they're doing and then here they are on a podcast <laughs> and here they both are and I'm like wow girls look at you Dennis specifically talking about, about me us as I like know. walking in as an intern yeah yeah and just mm-hmm. seeing them you know that makes me smile because it makes me feel like we were successful yeah so well, thank you, Jen. Thank you. <laughs> well, Jen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and being so willing to share about your experience um, in this event. Oh, 
you're welcome. You guys are amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to our final episode of season one, you guys. And don't forget about our giveaway. We will be drawing next week to see who gets to come take a tour of the crime lab. And have lunch with us. So be sure to stay tuned over the next several months and especially in the fall um, for some teasers that we'll be dropping about when you can expect us and some topics that we'll be featuring next season. And as always, if you'd like to contact us on our break, you can reach us at coffeewiththecriminalist at gmail.com. Bye, guys. That's a wrap. Wash us one. Yes, one. Go ahead. I'm Sheriff Darren Balam. Thank you for listening to another episode of Washoe County Sheriff's Office Coffee with a Criminalist. This podcast is one more way our office is striving to build trust and partnerships within the community that we serve. To learn more about our office, please visit us on the web at washoesheriff.com. If you'd like to further support this project, click subscribe and be sure to tune in for our next episode to learn even more about forensics. Until next time, folks. Washoe, this is S1. I'll be 1042. Have a good night. S1, copy. Have a good night.